Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler here in New York City on the afternoon of Thursday, November 2nd. Joined as always by Elaine Lowe and Richard Rushfield in Los Angeles. Uh, Richard, I got a note from the HBO folks. Uh, what is your fake Twitter handle? Just in case they need a hand with the Gilded Age campaign. Do you have something for uh, I mean, I, I guess I can reveal it now because I was using James Bond 00763 exclamation point ampersand. I see. But uh, too many people uh, just naturally figured out that was me. So <laughs> Of course. Now, so now I go with I'm just Ken. It's... I'm just Ken 53. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's very yeah, modest yeah. of you. Okay. Well, yeah. mine is uh, Fuchs Rules, which I don't think uh, is going to help HBO out, Richard. So, uh, you know, it's yeah. a tough one. Anybody know Michael Fuchs? No? Nobody on that one? All right. That one's on me. <laughs> H- HBO history callbacks and, yeah, exactly, uh, and Twitter yeah. handles are a great genre. <laughs> it's really great to uh, 1992 uh, HBO executives. Anyway. We'll get to that baffling story in uh, just a second. We also have Nicole Laporte joining us today. She has a piece coming out uh, today on the queen of Spotify podcasting, really, uh, the Call Her Daddy host and entrepreneur, Alex Cooper, and her new company with Matthew Kaplan that uh, is looking to bring uh, Gen Z to Hollywood. Uh, Richard, she's stealing your mantra. Are you okay with this? Uh, yes, that's. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to share. If she wants to try to take a shot at the throne, she's uh, she's welcome to go for it. <laughs> Anything for the kids, Richard. That's the way it goes. Yeah. Uh, Peter Kiefer is here. Hey, Peter, how you doing? Hi, guys. How you doing? Doing well, thank you. He and Elaine, of course, uh, dove into the Casey story for uh, the Ankler readers this week. We'll dive into that momentarily. Um, I'm going to note specifically we are recording at 12 noon West Coast time here on Thursday, November 2nd. So, Elaine... I guess we'll keep the SAG talk to a minimum other than they're still talking and uh, that's about where we're at at this point. The exciting update for this week is they are still talking. <laughs> they are moving either closer together or further apart, depending on who you ask. And they are still talking about AI, which remains the sticking point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the rumor mill was, dare I say, starting to look a little a little silly this week, Elaine. Is that an accurate uh, assessment of the back and forth so far? Well, not so silly for the frustrated people in the oh, room, I'm no. sure, trying to get this done. <laughs> but all the experts that were knew what the real conversation was, I read oh, widely different you know, takes here this week. Uh, I, this is why... Why I do not make predictions because somebody somebody always looks silly afterward. But but no, there was a little bit of an AI new AI complication this week. Uh, studios had I think introduced something, and it was so complex that nobody I was actually speaking to could somehow break it down for me as to what exactly this new AI language was. <laughs> But but they are moving plausibly closer. I am told on it. All right, that's that's all we can take. Ca- with a cautious optimism, right, Elaine? That's that's our our, our tattoo always, on, the, on the on the strike here. Yeah, last mile of this thing. Last last mile, last mile. Cautious optimism. Go go get them. There you go. And uh, well, and we should we should know Carol Lombardini is back, kind of running the AMPTP side at this point, right? Yeah, uh, you know, the the CEOs, the studio chiefs were sort of in and out of the room, uh, you know, less so, I think, this week. But we will see where it lands if they wind up talking tomorrow on Friday. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe the weekend, Elaine. People love the weekend conversations. So, you know, you never People know. People love working through the weekend. <laughs> Just Little known fact. <laughs> Just loving life. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a slow start to the week, but it definitely went up a notch for the past day and a half with all this activity. Also, Condé Nast had some pr- rather large and uh, – 
somewhat surprising layoffs, which is a bit of a metaphor for pretty much all legacy media industries. We'll touch on that. And Richard, yes, you can stop slacking me. We will talk about earnings week. I'll, uh, I'll break down the things to know from Roku and Fox and uh, dive into all those numbers so we can finally have our conversation. But uh, first, you know, yeah, Elaine, the, the head of HBO and Max Programming, apparently thought it was a good idea to create Twitter burner accounts and get back at TV critics. Uh, what's What's going on here? Yeah, according to a Rolling Stone story that dropped yesterday, uh, head of programming Casey Bloys has been or had tasked others in the company to create fake Twitter accounts to get back at critics. Isn't that right, Peter? Yeah, yeah. It was a weird one. Um, he had been I, I, a lot of this happened during the pandemic. And he, as we all recall, we were sitting at home. And as it was explained to me by people around Casey, he was spending way too much time on Twitter. What? Um, Peter, executives do that? I Apparently so. And uh, took it upon himself to concoct a new str- internal strategy to push back at negative comments coming from uh, professional critics uh, and people just who were commenting on various news stories about HBO and its shows. And his brilliant idea was to uh, create dummy accounts on Twitter and elsewhere to criticize the critics and basically come up with a strategy to, to sort of challenge whatever the criticism is was about whatever particular show they were talking about. Mayor of Easttown was one that was cited and um, a, few, a few of the other HBO shows. And it was all part of this a lawsuit that has been filed by a former assistant who was tasked with creating these these fake accounts, and it found its way into a, a wrongful termination lawsuit that this assistant has now filed against uh, HBO. So all these very embarrassing text exchanges um, have gone public, and uh, Casey had had to come out, uh, I, I guess, earlier today and address it. Well, the, hey, he was he was but well, he was scheduled. This is dropped the day before. This is a big press event, uh, basically, but not around this. This was for the new uh, HBO and Max programming lineup for 2024, which was already scheduled for this morning here on November 2nd, which he kept to his credit and came out and spoke about it. Right, right Peter? It, Exactly, exactly. So we started, Elaine and myself and uh, our colleague Claire started putting in some calls. And our general feeling once we'd read the Rolling Stone story was that there's absolutely no way he's going to do this presentation within 24 hours of this extremely embarrassing story coming out. And turns out he did, to his credit, and he addressed it. And I think he just said it was, he said it was dumb. He regrets it. He said it was only about six six tweets or six, six, six messages. So it was a very isolated campaign, you might call it. Uh, I talked to a former staff member who was in the marketing department of Max yesterday who was just sort of going like, this is so silly and dumb. It's like, if you're going to do this, do it at scale. You know, it's like <laughs> create a Twitter get, bot army to do this. Get a Twitter. <laughs> it's not hard. That's what I, I think, Richard, that was your problem with the whole uh, the campaign, right? I mean that was that was uh, what I assumed. It was what was disappointing to me. I assumed that every studio has a has a Twitter a, a bot army at its disposal to get out there and harass uh, Alan Seppenwall when whenever they are bothered at any time. And to hear that the head of HBO, the the grand illustrious HBO, has to beg for someone to get a friend to leave a comment on Deadline. I mean, what are we running like some little? pottery shop here that you've got to get rid of the nasty comments on Yelp. It's, it's, it was just uh, very tawdry. Yeah. You know, your takeaway on this, Richard, at this point, it's, I think 
it's, it's certainly something that will follow him around, and it is what it is, but I don't know uh, that this is going to be any lasting blowback or damage around. What is your, what is your sense on that at this point? No, I, I, I think the best rule of uh, crisis PR in these times is come out quickly, say everything, apologize fully, and uh, you take all the oxygen out of the room. And, you know, being that being the head of HBO, which is the one section of the Warner Discovery Empire that's really functioning at full steam right now, to think that David Zaslav is going to want to take a wrecking ball to that and put another division into chaos, it's going to take more than six tweets to do that. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, other people's careers have been destroyed in far less than six tweets. And yeah. I think it's interesting the last 24 hours how the vibe went to, oh, no, what a shocker, what a mortifying thing to, you know, it's fine. Didn't we all tweet dumb things during the pandemic? The fake account was one, quote unquote, Kelly Shepard, a mom and herbalist in Texas who had tweeted, quote, how shocking that two middle aged white men are shitting on a show about women. And another tweet, I think, accused uh, a critic of elitism. And I was talking to a TV critic yesterday who found it pretty, uh, quote, weird and troubling that Bloise's instinct here was to create a fake woman on Twitter to try and make a TV critic feel bad from a representation standpoint. Well, I love that. I love that HBO, of all places, is accusing someone of elitism, uh, accusing a, a, a like, we're just a little... We're just a little good old down home network here, and we're just trying to make some entertainments for the for the folks to watch while they they do up their chores around the house here. And you fancy TV critics are getting all up and up in our grills with your big learning there. You know, not not typically the the image that uh, HBO presents itself with. Probably not. No, that is not. Uh, I would, yeah. Yes, that's not really uh, particularly on brand for HBO. But uh, Peter, any other blowback you were hearing in your universe or what was your kind of final uh, thought on this here? You know, I think it was a yet another cautionary tale to everyone uh, was, you know, just stay away from social media. <laughs> <laughs> really? I mean, this is not an entirely different situation, but just follow the whole, you know, CA debacle, which, again, was started on social media. It's like it's 2023. Why is this stuff still uh, going on, Peter? I just sometimes it's like uh, a little baffling. It's just baffling. When, when in doubt, just step away from your computer or your phone and <laughs> put just the turn phone it off. down. It's, and but I think the one thing that was brought to my attention in talking about this was that. A lot of this happened during the pandemic, and I, I just got to chalk it up to Casey possibly just like kind of losing his mind a little bit, being alone, sequestered, and just yeah. I think we all can kind of look back and say we all kind of did some crazy stuff. I, I probably this blows over is my prediction, but who knows? I, I'm I'm not privy to what's you know what's happening up at the highest levels of uh, Discovery Warner. That said, um, you know every time someone gets into one of this and a company gets uh, bent out of shape about. What's on Twitter? I say you all need to pay a little less attention to Twitter and get out of your bubble there. However, the Twitter bubble is the HBO audience. Like that is the the Venn diagram between Twitter power users and the succession washers is a perfect circle there. So if there's one company in the world that has a you know Twitter Twitter hype and social media hype is the entire formula of uh, of HBO. So if there's one company that has business being uh, insanely obsessed with uh, what is said on, on Twitter and and some subtweet from a vulture critic, 
Uh, it is HBO. Certainly the, the brand with the most, yes, exactly, uh, dependency on critics for, for word of mouth for a lot of the shows. So, yeah, this is the network of uh, Silicon Valley, Entourage, Larry Sanders. This felt like this would be a plot point, perhaps, uh, in one of their own shows about an executive. Uh, it was at the end. It felt uh, kind of the wake up kind of a little Gavin Belson-esque for any uh, Silicon Valley fans out there. Just, you know, not a good look. And as you said, Richard, yeah, time time to put the social media down and just, you know, do the job. It's, it's, don't worry about the rest of this conversation. Um, so, but Twitter armies notwithstanding, out here in New York, at least, some surprising news out of Condé Nast, I suppose, but they're uh, trimming almost 300 people uh, from their ranks, according to the New York Times, uh, across, uh, especially on video resources. TikTokification of video has essentially hurt the economy of the larger video economy, uh, not supporting a real video business anymore where YouTube became obsessed with shorts and now Condé saying they really can't make money on it. Agnes Chu, who was a former Disney executive and the head of Condé Nast Entertainment, left the company earlier this month. Condé Nast Entertainment, of course, the kind of their liaison arm to Hollywood. Her role's not being replaced. You know, Richard, this is kind of a familiar tale with publishing, I suppose, to a degree, but now it's hitting back to the HBO and Condé probably have a run into similar uh, universe there, uh, Richard, to a degree, but it's hitting a brand that people are, you know, it's just hitting a little close to home for some folks, I think in the old, what we call mag used to call magazine business to a degree. Yeah. I see it. I see a trend here. Social media strikes back, but yeah, um, exactly. Condé Nast has kind of the last iceberg still floating out there of, as you say, a uh, a magazine business that really doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. The great thing about subscriptions is that they go on forever until people realize to to stop them. So a company like Conan Ass, which has all these legacy subscriptions from people who may be of advanced years now and may maybe even not even realizing they're getting these magazines anymore, but they they continue and the billing continues for a very long time. So it's sort of a, a zombie business right now. Yeah, looking for more of a business model. You know, Peter, you run run in this world, certainly. What is uh, what was your takeaway here this week? You know, I think that Condon asked, it, it made sense that they'd built out this entertainment wing to um, farm all the IP that they'd had coming out of from Vogue, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and Wired. But in, in chatting with, with people and executives who are in that space, development right now is so hard. And I think this might have just been a function of a shift that's underway in the entertainment industry, which is, A, the strike had a huge impact on this, but you're seeing a lot of these editorials and, and stories coming out about the end of, of prestige television, and we're entering into some sort of new phase. And I felt like if you think about the brands that Condé Nast were mining for IP, it very much was in tune with this era of prestige television. And I think we're moving past that. So they're timing was a little off on that. And actually, ironically, I just, the last article I read about the end of, of prestige television was in The New Yorker, um, <laughs> which is, you know, I, I, I think telling about the larger landscape of the industry. But um, we'll see. I mean, I think that they're not going to give up on it. They haven't totally abandoned this idea of mining, which I still think makes sense. It's just things are tough out there. And People are trying out new ways and costs are going to be of ever more importance. So it's it's too bad. As a writer who likes to get things optioned, it's a bummer. But um, hey, we got to we move forward. Yeah. And, you know, look, it's just very similar to the studios. These are uh, Condi at its core was an advertising company. You know, Richard, you say subscriptions, but, you know, they were generally, you know, $10 for a year, whatever it was. It wasn't it was to get you in the door to sell you ads. 
And now, you know, just like everybody else, uh, you know, Meta, Amazon's eating their lunch and it's becoming harder and harder. Certainly AI is a big, you know, question mark that no one's really too optimi- optimistic about in the in the news publishing business. So, uh, need, again, it's the same kind of thing. You need to pivot to a new model. Brands, you know, to your point, Peter, do matter more than ever, but you know, they, how many brands did Conde have back in the day? And, you know, how many are still here? You mentioned, you could probably mention five or six and it's like everything else falls off. Same in the media business. And do we need to, there are any fans of Freeform out there, or MTV2, all these things that were propping up the studio's, you know, bottom lines for years. And now it's like, you know, in the recent Charter Disney face-offs, like, yeah, we don't need Disney XD. We don't, we're not paying you for this stuff anymore. And we mean it. Uh, and so it's kind of this rationalization that's that's facing both these businesses at the same time, kind of coming together in an interesting way. But uh, yeah, brands matter more than ever. You need to have a reason to exist, whether you know you're a news publisher or a cable TV network. You know, this is what Mark Thompson at the New York Times certainly embraced over over ten years ago, when he really put the paywall up on the New York Times and said, "All right." We, this brand means something. People are going to pay for it, and that essentially saved where the company was going. Um, so, and, and Roger Lynch, the CEO of, of Conde, did say the two levers Peter he's going to lean into are subscription and e-commerce. And Wirecutter is certainly a big business for the New York Times. So, again, this game plan from ten to twelve years ago is where they're going to now. But it, it you know, hopefully, it's not too late, Peter. Yeah, this is obviously coming out the same week that, uh, you know, David Gran, a writer at The New Yorker, had, you know, his his latest book was turned into a Scorsese film. So you'll still still see, (laughs) you will still see, you know, IP being created by Condé Nast writers and staffers being, you know, exploited and used in, in the entertainment industry. I just think that their grand vision that they could sort of you know, mine even more and go back into their library and 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 all of a sudden money would be pouring down on them was, you know, just I, I maybe maybe 15 years ago, but not today. Yeah, some wishful thinking for sure. Anyway, speaking of uh, the importance of brands and such, we're going to dive into the world of a very hot brand in the world of podcasting, call her daddy and get all the latest tea from Nicole Laporte uh, from inside the world of one of Spotify's top podcasters, Alex Cooper. Uh, Peter, we'll let you go. Always good to see you. And uh, we'll be back in a moment. All right, so we have uh, Nicole Laporte joining us. Nicole, nice to see you again. Hello, thanks for having me. Sure thing. You have a piece coming out here at The Ankler all about Alex Cooper, who is the second most popular podcast host on Spotify after Joe Rogan. Her Call Her Daddy podcast has averages, I think, 5 million downloads an episode. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. That was a number for 2022. Yeah, the numbers, this year's numbers haven't come in, but yeah, huge, huge. Richard, that's just ahead of our podcast. Is that, do I have that correct as well? Or I, I don't have all the, the details of uh, our numbers here. I mean, in, in, in earnings season, I think we get double that. <laughs> so talk about, that right. uh, <laughs> how, how the quarterly numbers uh, compared to projections, but, but on a slow day, that's about where we are. That's about where we are. All right. Hopefully Roku will put us over the top later. Alex, of course, got her start uh, podcasting in the Barstool universe, but Call Her Daddy is now on her own. And it now gets, is this $100,000 in ad in the podcast? Is this right, Nicole? Yeah, minimum ad spend. Yes, minimum. Minimum. So, oh, imagine. okay. So you better have that just walking in the door, but make sure you bring <laughs> yeah. more. So, so set up, I'm sure, uh, I hope most people know who Alex Cooper is, but please set up this universe in the world you were diving into here at The Ankler. Yeah, she's, as you said, she's she's huge in podcasting. She started off um, at Barstool Sports. She started off with a co-host. I mean, she had just graduated from BU when she got started. She was like a star soccer player. She's this beautiful blonde, if you haven't seen her. 
And the podcast, I mean, the essence of it was just she and her former co-host, um, Sophia Franklin, sitting around just talking very bodily about their sexual exploits, drinking, you know, just like young, um, late, you know, early 20s, late teens, you know, just just candid, no-holds-bars talks about their crazy wild life, um, which totally fit in with the Barstool brand. Um, she then, there's kind of a long, complicated history. She broke off with the partner, took the podcast on her own to Spotify. Um, they made a $60 million deal, a three-year deal in 2021. So wow. she was one of those huge crazy deals, although not all that crazy because she actually was bringing this massive audience with her. Um, whereas, you know, you look at like the Obamas and Archwell, you know, they were, that was simply on their name. And this actually, there was a reason they signed her. And then sort of also interesting is what she's done with the show since then is it's become, it's just as she's gotten older, it too has morphed. Um, it's more of a, an interview format now. And she has kind of more serious conversation. I mean, she's still body. She's still funny. She's still very off the cuff. But she brings up topics like mental health. Um, she did a segment on abortion rights. And also the show, she was one of the early podcast pioneers at Spotify to push video. She approached Spotify and said, I really want to turn this into something people can watch. And now 80% of the people who consume the show uh, watch the show. Wow. So anyway, that's that's the kind of nut of the company's Call Her Daddy. She then meets this producer, Matthew Kaplan, who is behind, who started at Awesomeness TV, um, so really gets kind of YA, Gen Z culture. Um, and he's produced a lot of YA films for Netflix, including To All the Boys I've Loved. They meet, they are now getting married, they decide to form a company. <laughs> a lot has happened. As you um, do, Nicole, this doesn't happen. This as, is what happens, as hap right? Exactly. As one does. <laughs> so the idea is to kind of form this multimedia company with Call Her Daddy, the podcast at the center but to then go into films and TV and digital projects and bring on, which they already have, like they're bringing other podcasters kind of under this umbrella. And, you know, the secret sauce, as it were, is is her quote unquote daddy gang. That is what her followers are called. It's basically the equivalent of a Swifty. Um, they will do anything she wants them to do. They will follow her wherever she goes. She's launching a tour this weekend, I mean, they're all on Twitter and Instagram, you know, racking up tickets, asking other people for tickets. So, I mean, that is kind of the thing. They they want to take this audience and use it to drive other content and also, you know, build up their own IP. So it's, it's a very smart plan. Everyone I talk to, you know, bets on her. Matthew Kaplan's track record is also very strong. You know, it's just, just a matter of what are they going to actually produce and is the content going to be good? You know, that all remains to be seen. But that's kind of the idea. So that's that's why we got into this 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 story this week. Yeah, it's a, a business of hits, as Richard always says. So she certainly has a big one, but certainly following up your first hit is always uh, equally important, Nicole. I guess it's really, you know, bridging the positioning it as a bridge to the Gen Z audience that you know Hollywood is so concerned with or wants to reach and they you know want to make this bridge. They work with Netflix on a big promotion uh, you, you talked about. Yeah, yeah, they did. So the first, so the overarching company is called Trending, and their first film is Love at First Sight, which came out a month ago, a very big hit already on Netflix. And they, so interesting, this is kind of a case study for what they can do and how they can kind of activate her followers. Because of the actors strike, the actors could not come out to promote the film. So she basically put out a rallying call to her daddy gang and had a fan screening slash premiere of the movie in New York. And they all showed up and they all, you know, they show up, they tweet, they they spread the word. So so the daddy gang is like a marketing 
you know, a marketer's dream, especially for Gen Z, as you say. And I think, you know, as Hollywood's struggling with how do you connect with this audience and this generation that prefers TikTok, really doesn't want to go to the movies, you know, distrust everyone that, you know, isn't Mr. Beast. You know, she is that <laughs> equivalent of like, they trust her. They will, they will follow her. And, you know, she's never done any brand deals. So she has never, you know, picked up a can of soda and asked her followers to buy it. And I think, and she kind of talked to me about that, like, the difference between a creator and an influencer. So she sees herself as a creator. She creates content. She doesn't push products. And that, again, is something that Gen Z really takes seriously and and is, you know, that's an important value to them. So yeah, she just embodies kind of so much of what this generation is looking for, you know, when it comes to entertainment needs. Yeah. And, uh, and she's, you know, getting some pretty big guests, you know, Gwyneth's been on Jane Fonda was the one that you noted as well. Like, you know, this is, this isn't just, uh, you know, having influencers on or things along those lines. Like she's been getting some pretty big for big for Hollywood, a we call a list guests, I guess, uh, would be the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's interested in becoming more credible, so to speak, and not just being, you know, kind of the goofy, silly, crazy body 29-year-old, um, or I guess now she's 29, but the image she had 10 years ago, she she wants to evolve that and she is evolving that. And yeah, she's very interested in kind of talking about serious issues. Um, so yeah, she's she's brought on those guests. And the other interesting thing I learned is she produces the shows, like the clips, the how it's presented. Like she's really a producer. And when I asked her if she had any interest in becoming an actress, because the first thing you think when someone says they're going to launch a film <laughs> right. company is like, oh, you're going to be like, you know, the what, next, like yeah. you're going to ditch that podcast. What, yeah. What's the end game be, here? Yeah. Yeah. But no, she said, no, I mean, who knows what will happen? But she said, no, I, I genuinely have no interest in that. Like I like to produce. I want to produce, you know, these other people's pro- podcasts or help them. Yeah. So, yeah, so she's really, she's not just the star of the show. She kind of, you know, she she really does create the show. Yeah, well, here she is in her own words describing uh, what it is about that makes uh, Call Her Daddy a success. Well, that's why I think everyone was always like, is it journalism? Is it not? Like, I care about these people by the end of these interviews. Afterwards, we're hugging. I'm sitting in my living with them talking. Like, there's a relationship and rapport that's almost built within these moments because I think they can tell I actually care. Like, I don't want this person to leave and be like, did I just get like screwed over and that was just for clickbait? Like, it's never that. The headlines will come. But what's great is knowing these people feel really like it was a therapeutic experience to talk with me. So I love it. I'm obsessed. Uh, so Elaine, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> the uh, not the demographic here per se. Is this you know, a little more on your radar? What's what's your interaction so far with this with Alex Cooper and her emp- budding empire here? Oh, I'm afraid to say as an older millennial, I, <laughs> oh, is I that came what you through are? it via Instagram. Oh, <laughs> Instagram. Okay. I yeah, Instagram. That's how I discovered her and Alex Earl. So yeah, it's been it's a it's a new it's a brave new world out there. And Richard, I'm sure you're a fan. Yeah, I have a question though. Is it is it call her daddy? Like, would someone please call her father? Or is it call her daddy? Like that's her, her Alex's nickname is daddy. I think it's the latter. And I think it's, it's like a play on feminism. Like it's turning the, you know, turning it upside down. Uh-huh. Like I'm the daddy. Yeah. All right. So did you call her, did you call her daddy when you talk? <laughs> <laughs> I did not. 
<laughs> I will if just, I meet her. Now that I know, uh, just Miss, Miss Cooper's fine. I think that's let's just go with that one. But uh, but yeah, you know, it kind of plays into this notion, Nicole, of you know these the importance of I don't know fan armies, if you will, whether that's you know Taylor Swift's coming out in mass to go to, to you know see the Eras tour or you know obviously BTS things all the bit more in music per se, but. This notion that the ever increasing importance of these, you know, fan bases is really playing a larger role in the media and entertainment economy to a degree here, right? Or that's what they're, they're they're counting on, I guess. It sounds like with this company. Yeah, definitely. And one thing too that's interesting with podcasts, someone was explaining this to me, that the podcast audience they are particularly rabid, and it's almost like a cult following. That when you follow a podcast, it's so it's podcasts are so kind of specific that there's this sense that, oh, if you like the podcast that I like, then we have this real connection, a greater connection than, say, if you like the same TV show I like. So the idea that they feel so strongly about the product and about her that they will then, you know, of course, go to the tour or go see her online or, you know, but that there's something about a podcast audience, you know, even more so than like, you know, a film or TV audience that's very, very strong that I think, again, it's just, you know, that's that's kind of every Hollywood marketer's dream when the people in question are, you know, 18 to, to 33. Yeah. Our fanatical yeah. young followers are uh, becoming a problem, I just have to say. It's... Uh, oh, oh, really? They, that's, they, you know, this is, this is a character I play. Don't think you know me because uh, you hear my opinions about Casey Bloys. <laughs> Keep that in mind. They're beating down the doors of the Ankler's new office yeah. as we speak. Exactly. They, Exactly. Well, actually, so Matthew had some interesting words in terms of how do you position this? Why don't we let him chime in here as well, here with the clip from the interview. I think ultimately, if you think about Oprah, not to put Alex in the Oprah category, of course, but she was a pretty exceptional blueprint, right? The Oprah network, she supported other voices and I think Dr. Phil and some Mm -hmm. other people. Dr. Oz, yeah. Dr. Oz. And so you go, okay, that's interesting. And I think the creator Gen Z led uh, businesses are going to be exponentially larger in the next 10 years. And so I want to really think about how do we support those individuals while also never losing sight of creating premium content and premium experiences in real life. So uh, Oprah is an interesting choice, Nicole, but I'm certainly someone who <laughs> had a lot of sway with the generation. Uh Dream big, dream big, dream big, right? Yeah, exactly. Go big, go big. But (laughs) that was a, yeah. How do you position this company? What was your takeaway in terms of what they want to be seen as in in Hollywood and beyond? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I I do think another component of it. And, you know, when they were talking about Oprah, it's that she has brought other people up through the ranks and they, you know, as um, Elaine mentioned, Alex Earl and Madeline Argy are now under the, it's called the Unwell Network. Um, That's like their podcast network, I guess. Is that kind of? Yeah, but there's also the Unwell Tour. There's a lot of names going. I think they need to kind (laughs) of streamline all this. Streamline maybe. um, Okay. Yeah, but but the idea is to, you know, not just beyond just their own, you know, their own names on this company. They want to kind of grow the empire and tap into other people's audiences and bring, you know, bring them up through the ranks. So, you know, I think I think it's interesting. I think it's smart. And um, yeah, it's not just relying on their own star power. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I was trying to break down, like, again, what, what is this thing? And it's like, okay, so it's pot, you know, podcast is a big part of it. Seems like live events is something they're really looking to grow. It seems like to a degree. Uh, then uh, Matthew certainly is still producing films and TV shows for for this demographic, and then maybe like agent influencer agency or somehow again, how do you corral this? Is that I don't know that that was nebulous, most nebulous part of it for me on this one. 
I know. And it is a little nebulous. And, but I think a lot of these companies are, especially at the beginning, but, you know, like Issa Rae's company or Kevin Hart. I mean, a lot of people, you know, Reese Witherspoon and Hello Sunshine's a little bit of a different example, but similar in that it started with the book club and her celebrity. And now it's expanded into, you know, all these other things. So I think it's, you know, that model is out there. It's it's being used by a lot of people. Again, it just comes down to like, are you guys going to make stuff that people actually want to watch? Um, because it all sounds great right now, but what, <laughs> right. you know, what is the next movie going to be? How involved is Alex? And and someone did bring up the point, although she says she's, she's a producer, she doesn't want to be the star. Perhaps what the fans really want is to go see her in the next Netflix movie. And I mean, right. I would assume that would, um, yeah, that would, that would be an even bigger hit than, you know, something that really she's just behind the scenes on. Yeah. And you look at the, the, the Oprah had the same situation. The show was the thing and she went into producing own was certainly the, the cable network was where she branched out to, uh, cause that's what you did back at that time. You didn't do an influencer network. You did a, a cable network, but with varying degrees of success. And when Oprah is involved or not involved, there's a difference, you know? So there is that, you know, how do you solve that solve for X of the personality based, uh, fandom, uh, when they're not actually in the thing that, you know, that, that, people are that they're making so um the ringer was also something that uh, maybe not exactly right nicole I mean, i'm in the spotify universe but the way that you know it's just kind of a, a ringer for you know gen z women where you know bill simmons created this kind of thing as well for himself more and podcasting and more writing per se but that was another kind of a a comp that came to mind maybe yeah exactly yeah exactly the same and crooked media yeah there's a lot of different examples yeah well nicole a great read there over at the, the anchor.com you can go check it out there and as always good to see you nicole thanks for uh, making some time for us Thanks for having me. All right. Up next, just how bad are the TV strikes affecting broadcast TV advertising rates this fall? Find out as I do Elaine's favorite Ankler podcast activity, a pop quiz, Elaine. Are you ready? Oh, God, John. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, Richard has his uh, calculator watch out. So, you know, you're, you've been warned. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how this one goes. Anyway, we, we'll be uh, right back after a quick break. All right. So uh, it was a busy week in earnings this week. We have a lot more still to come. Fox went. We had uh, Altice and some cord cutting. We had some numbers at Roku. Uh, I break all that down in the Wake Up newsletter. You can check that out over at theankler.com for all of the things to know from those businesses. But uh, certainly a theme that was prevalent in both Fox and Roku was advertising. And uh, the folks at AdAge did one of my favorite pieces every year. They uh, poll essentially six of the leading advertising agency buying firms on, on Madison Avenue to kind of find out how much broadcast TV is charging for 30 seconds of ad time on broadcast television these days. Numbers were <laughs> not not great, but just want to see what you, what the you know general understanding is about how much money broadcast TV still brings in here. So Richard, if you're buying a Friday night SmackDown ad on, on Fox, Buy some WWE. How much is that going to run you for about 30 seconds? 30 seconds, um, $600. <laughs> I meant in 2023, Richard, not, not in uh, oh, 1985. Okay. Sorry, I should have clarified. This is a 2023 uh, conversation. Okay. Yes. $650. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right. All right. Uh, Elaine, what do you got? Uh, is this multiple choice? No. Well, it's definitely not six hundred fifty dollars. I'll tell you that. So that that <laughs> uh, okay, was one of your choices. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say a million dollars. 
A million. Wow. This is no, you two are really. Yeah, that'd be that would def, <laughs> definitely not be. I think you can buy the whole show for a million dollars, actually. Uh, no, $50,000 is about the uh, 51000 is about the going rate. I for, think by Price is Right rules, uh, Price is Right rules, Richard <laughs> wins here. Richard does one of the Price is Right rules, yeah. but he can't be giving $600 every time. That's just going to be, uh, you know, just that. It'll be on contestants row forever. Well, let's go over to the NFL then, Richard, your other favorite sport. Give me some uh, ABC Monday Night Football this year. It's brand new back on ABC after a good uh, almost 20-year right. uh, departure to ESPN there. So what is uh, 30 seconds of NFL ad time on Monday Night Football run you if you want to advertise your your the newsletter there. Does, does Cosell do the ad read himself? Or, uh, that, that costs extra. That would really be interesting. Maybe yeah. With AI, maybe they could bring him back. I don't know, but okay. uh, let's assume let's assume no. Uh, okay, I'm going to say I'm I'm going to I'm going to bet bigger this time. Uh, Four hundred and fifty thousand. All right, not bad, Elaine. I'm going to say I'm going to say six hundred thousand. Mm, closer, but still, Richard. Richard gets the prices right rules. We have five hundred ah, sixty-two thousand dollars for oh, thirty seconds of ad time. Not bad during an NFL game. Monday Night Football is a big thing. I've I've heard of it. So <laughs> yeah, I've heard of that exactly. <laughs> not not as big as Sunday Night Football, which is uh, eight hundred eighty-two thousand wow. dollars for thirty seconds of ad time. So th- there's your big number, Elaine. If that's close to the million. Uh, it's not wrestling. It's it's football. So. Uh, NBC is still wrecking, wrecking in the money there. So what is the most expensive broadcast show on the strike-affected schedule this fall across all four uh, primary networks? Uh, sports. Mm. Is sports a show? No, no. Uh, outside, of, outside of the football. Outside okay. of the football. Okay, so yeah. we're talking unscripted and scripted, no sports. Yep. No sports. Yep. I'm going to say uh, The Voice. All right. Richard? Uh, CSI somewhere. <laughs> I think there is any C. That's the there is no CSI. No, oh. wait, is that the Sydney NCI, one? NCIS. NCIS as a Sydney show, the Australia version. But uh, no, Elaine, you are correct. Uh, the Voice was topping the really? list. How much do you think that would cost you, Elaine? Ooh, uh, let's see. Probably not as much as sports, and it is unscripted. <laughs> good, good. But it is the Voice, so mm. I'm gonna say a hundred thousand. Not bad. You do get this one because this is a uh, the Price is Right rules one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. Oh, That's, uh, look what happens when I year. actually apply my rain for a couple of seconds. There. <laughs> <laughs> so don't use it too much. We'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. But but that is down uh, again according to the ad age numbers over forty percent from last year. And uh, Richard, that's really you know the bigger headline here is. The Masked Singer and Simpsons both were down fifty percent year over year for the ad rates. And again, without having these bigger. You know the Dick Wolf shows and things to tie to tie your ad rates into. It seems like it's been quite a big hit, and even things like Young Sheldon, which is still in reruns. The rerun gets you fifty thousand, but the new episodes get you one hundred fifty thousand. So again, that's one thirty second ad. So yeah, I mean, losing uh, forty or fifty percent a year that that starts to add up. Yeah, and you know, we uh, as I broke it down in the, in the earnings for Roku this morning. You know, the dollars are shifting, Richard, and you know, even when these shows come back whatever that is going to be. It's not like, oh, well, we're going to come back and spend what we what we were going to do before. It's like, you know, the dollars are gone and accounted for. And, uh, you know, this is a declining area here. So the effects of the strike here really, uh, you know, are going to be long lasting. And uh, the broadcast TV business alone is really the big question mark, again, outside of outside of sports, Elaine. But um, certainly not some promising numbers uh, for anybody involved in that business at the moment. 
Well, Richard, we'll shift to your, more of your favorite topic, movie theaters this weekend. Uh, we'll see how Five Nights at Freddy's does in weekend two. Uh, we've got A24 expanding to, expanding to 1,000 screens-ish for Priscilla. Um, Roadside has the Marsh King movie. But, uh, you know, Richard, you <laughs> the AFM is going on. Uh, that's the bigger news out there in Los Angeles. What is, what is the AFM? So the AFM is the American film market. It's uh, where buyers from around the world – come to America to get uh, American movie products to take back to Bulgaria or uh, Myanmar or where, wherever they come from. But uh, they, they don't go for the American movie products you've heard of. They, they come here to buy the, uh, the, the local rights to these hundreds of movies that get made every year starring sort of quasi-stars, some of whom... You heard of years ago, some of whom you sort of sort of sound familiar, some of whom might look a little bit familiar, doing kind of bizarro world versions of Hollywood plot lines. Uh, it's a great festival. It's, it's my favorite of all film festivals, and uh, uh, I'm going to go check it out soon. Yeah, and you wrote a couple of, you had a piece coming out that came out today at the, at the Ankler, kind of just highlighting a couple of, uh, give, give us two of your favorites that you saw that were uh, for sale there uh, this this week. I recommended my can't miss picks from from the AFM lineup, and number one I thought was uh, which which just looked really unmissable for any film fans in the area was uh, Zombie Plane. Uh, and here's here's the synopsis: When passengers on a jet flying from Sydney to Los Angeles become infected with new strains of zombie virus, not the old strains of zombie virus, but this is a new, uh, stronger strain of zombie virus. Sure. Um, vanilla Ice, you heard that right, back back on this big screen where he belongs. Uh, vanilla Ice and Sophie Monk are forced to team up to contain the contagion before the Air Force shoots this plane out of the sky. Wow. Well, I mean, um, you know, that doesn't get much more high stakes than that, Richard. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a sign, sign yeah. me up. I'm also going to be checking out Meth Gator is uh, is playing this weekend. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Tear Sucker is an interesting, real interesting concept there. Uh, emotionally vulnerable women are preyed upon by a charming psychotic who wants to suck their tears. Oh, well, all right. That sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds like a good, good family film. Okay. Wait, can we go back to Meth Gator? Is this like the spiritual <laughs> successor to Cocaine Bear? Mm. I, I think so. It takes it to another uh, sort of super. It, I'll, I'll read you the the synopsis. Um, after a massive drug bust causes tons of methamphetamine to contaminate the local sewers, a thirty foot meth crazed alligator wreaks havoc on a small Florida town. Now the local law enforcement uh, is is forced to fight back against the deranged beast to stop it before their annual Memorial Day festival. Because you can imagine what happens at a Memorial Day festival in, in the Everglades if a uh, meth-crazed 30-foot alligator is uh, set loose. So a fun family film then. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of a lot of great stuff. Okay. There's another great one that that sounds like a real kind of family bonding film called Feral, about a, uh, a a father and his daughter. They're estranged and, and and have difficulties, but they have to work together to struggle to 
to fight against a pack of feral hogs that have been let loose in the middle of a dust storm. Not bad enough that you have a pack of feral hogs attacking you, but there's a dust storm, too. Wait, is this based on that one tweet, that, like, 50 feral hogs tweet? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I don't, but... I'm going to have to go do my research after this. Sorry, I missed it. Coming soon to Disney+. Plus. We'll see when these titles go. And, Elaine, of course, you have your Cool as Ice poster behind you, so I know you're in for the Vanilla Ice movie, so uh, you're signed up for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Totally down for that. (laughs) I'll keep you posted in the wake up who buys it so you can know where to find it. So I'll end this week, Richard, on a hopeful note for you, an R-rated comedy. Just a note over our, our friends at Netflix had a very big week with no hard feelings. Biggest week for a Sony film ever on Netflix so far. So, yeah, I mean, com- comedy with stars, it's still something people want to watch. And uh, maybe maybe they're they're going less to the theaters for it. But uh, Jennifer Lawrence comedy that that sells some tickets on Netflix. Yeah, that uh, bigger than uh, bigger week than Bullet Train, Auto, Crawdads, all those films. Knocked so. Old Dads off the. Uh, uh, not, well, no, Old Dads the, is still the, number the, one. The but in, in the U.S., uh, okay. in the U.S., no hard feelings was number one, and it's worth pointing out that movie is pretty much only available in the U.S. to watch. The Sony uh, titles only go to a handful of Southeast Asian countries in the U.S., so a huge week. I broke all the, the math down in the wake-up this week, but uh, I was was heartened to see that film do well, and you know what? It's engagement for Netflix, and it's a check for Sony. It's like it's not like it's a one win or the other. It's a win-win situation. Everybody, that's what we, we, what we used to do in Hollywood, Richard, uh, you know, when, when films went to HBO and everybody was very happy about it, so... Nice to see a return of that. Absolutely. And uh, the R-rated comedy lives lives somewhere. I'll keep you posted on the strays numbers, but we'll need a few more months on that, Richard. So TBD. Richard Elaine, always good to see you both. And of course, thank you uh, to Nicole and Peter for joining us as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Ankler at theankler.com to get the latest from Richard. My daily wake-up newsletter, where I'm going to break down big earnings uh, coming up next week from WBD to Disney to Endeavor and much more. Uh, TKO is also in there. Of course, get the latest insight from uh, Peter, Elaine, Claire, and the rest of The Ankler team. And uh, of course, Elaine's still going strong over at Strikeist. Yeah, maybe this might be the week. We'll see. So stay tuned. <laughs> you can, of course, uh, subscribe there at strikeguys.com and totally free and reach out to Elaine uh, with any info or uh, stories with uh, Elaine at theankler.com. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>